Hi, you're listening to iiPod, the official podcast of the Duke Lemur Center in Durham, North Carolina. I'm Matt Ford's curator of fossils at the Duke Lemur Center. And I'm Megan McGrath, Education Programs Manager at the Duke Lemur Center. Hi, Matt. Hi, Megan. So today, we are going to talk about what a lemur is. What a lemur is. It's kind of a big subject, right? It's a really big subject, but we're going to try to keep this... We're going to keep it tight. We're going to keep it tight. First, let's start with defining a lemur. Why do we need to talk about what a lemur is compared to other animals? How do we decide any animal is different from any other animal or the same as any animal? How do we classify them? That is a whole field of science called taxonomy. What taxonomy means is just like naming things, essentially. And the way that scientists name things can sound really complicated, and we love a big word that comes from Latin or Greek or some combination of the two. But really, it's just a way to try to figure out where we are in the whole tree of life. There are millions of species out there. Some of them have names, and some of them are still new to science, and eventually someone will go out and figure out what they are. But for our purposes, we are staying on one little branch of the tree of life, and that branch is the one that has lemurs in it. Absolutely. So I guess we'll start with the widest. If we're using this tree analogy, let's just go really hard with it. So if we're talking about the widest part of the branch, we're talking about mammals, right? Yes. So mammals are a really amazing group. Megan, for you, what what is a mammal? I feel like mammals are the animals I feel the most connection to when I see them out and about in the world. They're the things that seem the most familiar and are probably what most people think of when they just think of an animal in general. Of course, there are exceptions for any bug people out there, but I feel like they're the animal in some ways because, of course, we're mammals too. Yeah, and to be fair, the last... I don't know, 66 million years of Earth history is sometimes called the age of mammals. So maybe that's a little bit of uh, us getting up on our high horse, which is a mammal. But there are a lot of mammals around today in an incredible diversity. They all share a couple of traits that tell us all of these animals probably shared a common ancestor millions of years ago. And that's really what we're trying to do in taxonomy is try to figure out these points when different groups that are related to each other shared a common ancestor, and then how from that common ancestor you get all the diversity of life branching out. Because really, that's the fun part of biology, is basically these stories through time of how different lineages adapted to the world around them and changed in some dramatic and some really subtle ways. And you can study that through changing genetic information, because a group of animals that share a common ancestor also share a common genetic code. And so we use genetic information and we use kind of body shape information and behavior to try to lump different groups together. So when we're talking about mammals, what are some of the traits that you have observed in some of our favorite charismatic creatures? Well, I mean, there's the classic one of fur or hair. There's, of course, live birth. And there are mammary glands, milk. As a paleontologist, it can be really hard to study mammals if we're only using hair and live birth and if we're using milk. None of those traits really fossilize very well. And so then there are traits that are written in our bones that are connected to each of those features. Having hair is basically a sign of mammals having a really high metabolism. That is, we need a lot of food to keep our bodies warm all the time. And that kind of growing up quickly and moving our bodies quick is something we actually see in bones. Basically, what hair means written in our skeletons, which is a pretty amazing way to go into the fossil record and understand when did mammals first get their hair. We can also figure out when milk first arrived. Creating that suction to actually feed ourselves when we're tiny, tiny babies is something that requires cheeks. And so that 
is something we can actually also see in the fossil record, kind of where muscles are attaching and covering our faces and where we're getting complicated teeth that are eventually part of this mammal drinking milk thing. And if you look at someone trying to animate a crocodile talking in a commercial, it always looks really weird because crocodiles don't have cheeks. Neither do birds, neither do bugs. That is just a mammal thing. So it's kind of cool to look at these traits in living animals and try to connect them to what we see in the fossil record to understand how mammalness kind of emerges from the fossil record. I feel like cheeks are undersold when it comes to mammal representation. We should make sure that cheeks are more out there as a key trait of mammals. Amen. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so we've talked about mammals. Now we need to get a little more specific, a little narrower on our branch, on our way to lemurs. And what's our next classification? So our next classification are primates. Primates are things that like to live in trees that are mammals that usually have pretty complicated social lives and big brains. But wait, humans are primates, right? And we are not hanging out in trees all the time. And so we are kind of this like problem in the classification of primates. If kind of aliens came to Earth and started talking to us about our ancestors, they would immediately notice that we were doing something really different from our other primate relatives. Because all other primates spend a lot of their time in the trees. There's some that come down to the ground pretty often. And the way that they stay in trees are through a bunch of adaptations that are really important that we still have in our bodies. So what is in our bodies that makes us primates? Like, how can we tell that lemurs and humans are more closely related to each other than, say, a bird or an alligator? So one of those things are thumbs. Being able to kind of get a grip with one of your fingers swinging around and grabbing in an opposite direction from all of your other fingers, that is a superpower that only primates have. There's a couple of possums that have figured out how to do it, but it's primates. (laughs) I know. With everything we say, we should probably mention there is always an exception or three or five to all of these rules. So that's why we concentrate more on what is alike as we define primates. Part of how we figure out these classifications is looking at more than one trait. So there Mm -hmm. may be an exception, an animal that, sure, it has a thumb, but another trait that are fingernails and toenails. Most other mammals have claws or hooves. Um, or if you're a whale, you don't have either of those things. You have a big tail and you live in the water and boy, aren't you special. <laughs> but the fingernails are something that we think in primates help us get kind of a really firm grip using really sensitive finger pads that are also really important for helping us scramble through the trees. And this brings us to my two favorite primate adaptations, which I think go very well in tandem, which is our brains, which tend to be much larger compared to our body size. The comparison is really important because if you have a tiny body, The brain isn't going to be as big compared to, say, an elephant. Um, But also we have forward-facing eyes, things that basically help with depth perception. And all of those complicated feedback loops between those forward-facing eyes and our brain are really important for our survival, right? Because if you are a monkey that is leaping through the canopy trying to get away from a predator, you need to know exactly where that branch is going to be, exactly where your arm needs to be. Those are probably my favorite of the adaptations. I also want to open the floor, too, in case we want to talk about any traits that people think are primate primate traits, but are not actually something, not all primates, basically. You have done a lot of tours at the Duke (laughs) Lemur Center, and what is probably the most common primate trait you get asked about? Uh, Tails. Tails. Every single time. Do they have prehensile tails? Can they use their tails to swing? And the answer is, probably not. (laughs) Most primates cannot use their tails. So tell us who can use their tails. Let's let's talk about them. A few groups of primates that only live in South America and Central America. And those are the prehensile-tailed monkeys. These are things like spider monkeys and woolly monkeys and howler monkeys and capuchin monkeys. 
they're able to use their tails as if they're another limb. It's, it, it makes me so jealous watching <laughs> them move because they can just be hanging out, eating some fruit, and then just like casually wrap their tail around something and then just like dangle there and get an extra few inches to grab for something. It's an amazing adaptation these creatures have, but it is something that has evolved independently in a couple of these lineages, but only in South America despite having millions of years to diversify in amazing ways in Madagascar, lemurs do not have prehensile tails. No lemur has done that. They've done all kinds of other amazing things, but they cannot wrap their tail around something and just hang by it. Something else that is really important for primates that doesn't fossilize very well, and it's hard to observe sometimes, um, but it's maybe connected to their big brains, is social complexity that we find in primates. Their ability to live in large groups, to cooperate with each other, to have social hierarchies among each other, that is a primate trait. We find in baboons, we find in capuchins, we find in shafox. This social complexity is something that primates rely on to live together, to find food together, to keep each other safe. is a really important adaptation that primates all seem to share. Do we want to get even more specific, get into our thinnest branch of the tree so far? Yeah, let's throw out some, let's put some more <laughs> polysyllabic words out there. <laughs> we have two words we could use to keep classifying further, and one of them is prosimian, which is considered a more outdated term, although not technically incorrect. It is incorrect for one animal that we'll talk about in just a minute. The other term would be strepsirine. So let's talk about those two words, what they mean, and then let's talk about the weird exception that falls in between them. <laughs> so I think in every classification, when you give a word to something, some group, it's because you're making a contrast to another group. That's basically what taxonomy is, is whether you're studying animals or you're studying artifacts or you're studying your favorite car, you're putting names on things because you're comparing one thing to another thing. You're saying it's different because of this trait and this trait and this trait. Among primates, we use the categories of strepsirine and haplorine. Strepsirine means curled nose, because if you look at the end of the nose, the little nostril, the holes where you breathe air through, is curved. Strepsirines include lemurs, galagos, lorises, and pottos. The branch is forked. Other side, haplorines. Haplorine is a group that we belong to. And so it's not a coincidence that the word haplorine means simple nose or dry nose. It's basically like our nose, like the thing that looks like this. And so primates that look like our nose are part of this group. And so that includes monkeys from South America, monkeys from Europe and Asia, apes, and tarsiers. So, tarsiers. They are just such strange little primates with so many exceptions that we actually had to make a whole bonus iipod episode just to talk about them. All right, now we can get back to the rest of the Strepsorion family. So one of the traits that you might notice when you're up in the face of a lemur or a galago or a loris is a tooth comb. Yeah, it's pretty literal. It is a comb made out of teeth. So it's usually the first six teeth in the front of the mouth, though it can vary down to four, can include the canines. And it's basically teeth that grow at about a 45 degree angle out towards the bottom lip and are literally set in a little straight line, all kind of fused together so that the lemur or pato or galago can use it as a comb, comb through the rest of their fur. Uh, my favorite part about this is that you think a tooth comb is weird enough, but actually it gets weirder because, of course, you get weird things stuck in your comb if you're running around in the woods and trying to comb out your fur. 
And so if that comb is in your mouth, you don't want those things stuck in your mouth. So uh, lemurs also have a sublingua, which is like a secondary tongue. It's not the same soft tissue muscle. It's a little kind of white triangle of cartilage that forms a little toothpick in their mouth. So if you're ever watching a lemur, observing them on videos or in person at a zoo, look really closely. And if you see them do that kind of grooming motion where they're using the tooth comb, you'll usually see them kind of look up and then stick their tongue out of their mouth because they're using that sublingua to get all the bits out of their tooth comb. So yeah, this is a trait. It seems kind of small in some ways, but it is is a consistent one. Like all across the group, we can use this. This is one of these great kind of classification things. There are no monkeys and no apes that have this tooth comb feature. And so that is one of the things we see in strepsorines. We should mention that our favorite exception to this rule happens to be the namesake of our podcast, the I.I. They are the single lemur that does not have a tooth comb because they're too busy having crazy beaver teeth, but we'll get into that later. Other traits that we see in strepsorines um, are maybe a little more subtle. Uh, They are things like, I mentioned the fingernails being something that makes a primate a primate, fingernails and toenails. On most strepsorines, they've taken one of their toenails and made that toenail into a claw. And so the working hypothesis is that all primates had nails across all of them, and then somewhere in the common ancestor of strepsorines, this little claw, like a a fingernail, kind of got mushed back together again to have a claw. I mean, we talked about how they groom using their teeth, and grooming is very important. I mean, like, obviously looking fluffy and cute is advantageous to a lemur in a zoo being cared for, but that's not the reason (laughs) they keep themselves clean. Staying clean and staying hygienic is a key to making sure wounds don't get infected, making sure that you don't get parasites and other things. And there are areas you can't reach with your mouth. And so for the strepsorines, most of them, they have figured out a different adaptation that is the claw. So they can be social and groom each other with their tooth combs, but also they can kind of reach in and around their ears and their face and the other areas they can't reach with that grooming claw. Another trait that helps us recognize a strepsorine is something that fossilizes well, which is my favorite kind of trait. (laughs) And it's how their eyes are built. And actually, there's a lot about primates that's really fascinating about eyeballs. Because, again, we've brought them forward and we rely on them a lot to make our way through the world in a way that other animals use their noses a lot more. The eyeball is set in lemurs and surrounded by a ring of bone. That ring of bone is something that you don't find in many other groups of mammals. Mammals in general have their eyeball kind of set in their skull and the middle part, kind of by the nose, is all bone. But then the outside, kind of like as you're getting closer to like the chewy muscles, is mostly tendon. Like there's kind of like an open gap on the skull of a fox or the skull of a polar bear. But in primates there's a ring of bone that goes all the way around our eyeballs. And in lemurs, it's just a bar that kind of connects the cheekbone to the top of the skull. It's called a post-orbital bar. Post means behind, orbit means eyeball, and it's a bar. So it's just the bar behind the eyeball. And this post-orbital bar is something that is an important way to recognize a strepsorine because if you've seen a human skull, you will notice that there is bone going all the way around our eye, and you can actually feel that bone going around your cheek But then, something you can't feel, is there's also bone behind your eyeball. We basically have an eye socket, is what we call that. Finding an eye socket is only something you're going to find in the skull of a monkey or an ape. And so it's a really convenient way to recognize those animals when you find them in the fossil record. You are not going to find a zebra with an eye socket. You're not going to find a whale with an eye socket. So... This is something that can be used by paleontologists going into the fossil record to understand where monkeys and apes came from, basically where haplorines come from, looking at this post-orbital closure or eye sockets, 
versus just having the bar as a way that you know you have a strepsorine in your hand. I like to focus, because I'm not a paleontologist, on things that I can see and observe in the living animals. And I find really fascinating the fact that strepsorine primates tend to, in most of the world, be nocturnal. I have my own personal theory for why that is, nocturnal being active at night. Um, so lorises, pottos, uh, bush babies, uh, which are galagos, um, you will find them in areas where you have other more highly evolved primates that are not humans, so where you have monkeys and apes. So my personal theory is that things got really crowded once the haplorines started to evolve, and it became a lot harder for strepsorines to survive. And so one of the niches that they carved out was, I'm going to be active at night, and I'm going to be small and nocturnal and kind of stay out of everybody else's way. But then that kind of flips when we're talking about lemurs, because lemurs are the only strepsorine species that have lots of diurnal species represented in them. I'm finding it hard to say that there's anything much more distinctive about lemurs from other strepsorines than the fact that they just live in Madagascar and other strepsorines don't. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, today, if we look around the world, that is the definition of a lemur, that, that lemurs are the strepsorines that made it to Madagascar. And they made it from mainland Africa to Madagascar. And that, that dispersal across the Mozambique Channel is a really fascinating biological question. When and where and how that all happened. It is kind of a mystery, so we can only go so far asking questions about that. What we do know is that mainland Africa is home to other strepsorines. And there's also strepsorines that are living in Southeast Asia. It is likely that the animals that are living in Africa are the closest relatives of the things that are living in Madagascar. And we can test that by looking at genetic evidence. And bingo, that's what we have. <laughs> that the ancestors of lemurs were living in mainland Africa. So there was a time when you could have hopped in a time machine and you would have gone to Africa and you could have taken some hair from a couple different strepsorines. And some of those strepsorines would have been more closely related to galagos and lorises. And some of those strepsorines would have been more closely related to lemurs. But for some reason, the relatives of lemurs made it across the Mozambique Channel and then diversified into the amazing abundance of lemurs that we see in Madagascar. And for some reason, the lemur relatives went extinct in mainland Africa, leaving behind their cousins, the galagos and the lorises. So today, lemurs are strepsorines only found in Madagascar. But there was a time when that wasn't necessarily true. And we had lemurs living in Africa that had to make their way across the water to eventually found this whole new radiation that we are in love with at the Duke Lemur Center. Absolutely. For me, then, a lemur is the farthest you can get from humans while still being in the primate family. Lemurs are fascinating to me because they're kind of like a stepping stone in evolution between earlier mammals and other primates like monkeys and apes. Fun fact, one time I had a lovely South Korean family on my tour, and they taught me that the Korean word for lemur was a literal translation of fox monkey, which I thought was brilliant. Yeah, that is exactly, exactly right. what they look like. Exactly. So we know that lemurs are primates, and primates, we also know, have notoriously enormous brains relative to their body size. But not so much lemurs. Some of them, like our friend the eye eye, yes, that is definitely the case. Very large brain to body size ratio. Others, not really that large, and that may or may not affect their cognitive ability. We can look at animals like ring-tailed lemurs, who have relatively small brains compared to other primates, but are notorious for having incredible cognitive abilities, living in large troops with social complexities they are very unusual. The reliance on sight for most primates is, yeah, definitely there in lemurs, but 
they rely much more heavily on scent and their rhinarium and their wet nose. So it's almost like you have to group together what everybody is as a primate, and then you find everybody who doesn't really fit all the primate rules, and then you call them strepsorines. And that's part of why the Duke Lemur Center exists in some ways, is because if we want to say something about what it means to be a primate, which in some ways is about what it means to be human, what it means to have these adaptations, what it means to have a large brain, what it means to be able to figure out problems um, using that brain and using our complicated hands, that we want to understand kind of how far back does that go. And so looking at the behavior and cognition of a lemur, which has a large brain compared to other mammals, but a small brain compared to monkeys and apes, tells us something about what, what can you do with the amount of kind of cranial circuitry that a ringtail has or that an eye has that's got a bigger brain. And then compare that to what we know about studying humans and our behavior or the research that goes on studying baboons or studying chimpanzees. And this all ultimately tells us about this mysterious organ that lives behind our eyeballs that we really are only just now starting to understand in ourselves and also in other animals. So another exception that we can see in behavior and in observations of these animals is the social hierarchy aspect. Primates are notoriously extremely social, have very complex relationships with each other. It is a big reason for how they survive, why they survive in these groups. But lemurs, again, particularly when we get to the nocturnal side of the lemurs, tend to be a lot more solitary, tend to not want as much interaction with each other, or have these weird kind of hybrid social and not social tendencies where they might forage in isolation but nest together, or the reverse, might forage together but then nest separately. And so that's just yet another thing that makes a lot of lemurs really interesting and unique. Lemurs have, compared to us, an amazing sense of smell. And it's kind of mysterious. Like, what are they doing with that nose? One of the things that has happened in the lineage that has led to monkeys and to apes is that we have all gotten shorter noses. That's something that haplorines are kind of united in and having simple noses. It means, like, we just, our, our snouts aren't very long. And there's a lot of hypotheses for why maybe getting a shorter snout gave us like stronger bite force because you get more muscles around there and like it opens up dietary options. Who knows? We're working on it. What we do know is there are not as many nerve endings in our noses compared to a lemur. And what do we know about some of the sensory abilities of lemurs? So we see on a daily basis when we're watching the lemurs at the lemur center that scent marking and scent communication is a huge component of lemur behavior. So all lemurs have at least one scent gland, often multiple scent glands, and that basically translates to a spot that secretes something that smells really specifically like that lemur. And when we have had researchers who've collected, you know, secretions from scent glands and, you know, you give it a whiff, you just smell like, ugh, kind of smells off and weird. <laughs> it doesn't smell great to us. But that scent gland is actually just information coded in there. The way I like to explain it is when I'm out on a tour and I've got a sign in front of the enclosure that tells you this is the crowned lemurs and this is information about them. The crowned lemur cannot read that sign. They don't know that that says this is their habitat and no one else's habitat. So to them, the words on that sign are meaningless. Letters, numbers, they're meaningless. But they know exactly what information is coded in the scent secretion that they're producing. And so they go around diligently marking everything that usually means rubbing their butts on everything at least if not other parts of their body that have scent glands and they are rubbing to basically note that says like hey 
this is this crown lemur's specific spot. This is Arya's spot. And then her partner, Ma'at, might come behind her and say, just so you were clear, she's not single. There's a male in here as well. And so just the same way that we would walk along a street and read the business names or the addresses and know, okay, this is where I am. This is who this building belongs to. Lemurs are giving the same amount of information just through scent instead of through sight and through the cognitive ability that we have with words and language. And so similarly, they can use that same language to communicate with each other about things like flirting. The most famous, of course, example of this behavior in territorial marking and in flirting is one of my favorite terms in biological literature because this is literally the term for it and it is stink fighting. So stink fighting is when a male ring-tailed lemur will pull their tail in front of them, use the scent secretions on a gland by their shoulder and additional um, kind of spur scent glands on their forearms and they will rub their tail really, really good, get it nice and stinky and then they will stand up nice and tall, do this very intimidating squeaking sound and they will wave their tail over their heads and the stinkiest male typically gets the girl or defends their territory. It can be a precursor to more involved territorial disputes between different troops in the wild. Um, And it also can literally be how a new male introduces himself to a female. When we're introducing them, we like to see how they react. And so all these complicated behaviors that may look silly at first glance are really just another way of exchanging information. And there's some really cool research that's still being done into what is that information that they're communicating? Is it about their immune systems? Is it about their genetic material? Is that how they're actively choosing mates in order to determine the best possible success for their offspring in the future? And the answer is most likely, but we're still gathering evidence for all of those things. Our primate ancestors that we shared with lemurs had really good noses. They had this ability to kind of sense the world in a much more nuanced way than we can with our dinky human noses. But we still have the structure, it's called the vomeronasal organ, that is kind of housed in the roof of our mouth that could theoretically pick up on some like scent complexity. And so there's almost this idea that like what what are we not even aware of that we're perceiving in the world around us? There's this kind of idea that there's something that was either lost or something we don't even know about in our primate kind of like deep primatey brains um, that we're responding to in the world around us. And so trying to understand like how lemurs use their vomeronasal organ to navigate the world is maybe something that will reveal some of the mysterious behaviors that humans have because it is something that was a part of what it meant to be a primate. And then there was this separation between strepsorines and haplorines. And haplorines kind of gave up on basically a whole sense. Like, we still have a sense of smell, but it is not what it once was. It's a little bit like if we suddenly decided not to have color vision anymore. So in humans, all of this smelling research is usually in pursuit of pheromones. And so if you ever heard about research studies where there's a dirty shirt that's given to someone and you ask, like, does this person smell attractive to you or not? Like that, all of that research is basically getting at trying to figure out if we still have an ability to understand the world around us through our noses in a way that maybe we're not even aware of sometimes. And so that is something that at the Lemur Center, all of this research that goes into the sensory perception of lemurs kind of contributes to, because really it's revealing something about how we as humans see the world around us. And in some ways, that is part of why we love lemurs, (laughs) is because there is this diversity, there is this group of founding lemurs that crossed the channel from Africa to Madagascar. And once they arrive in Madagascar, there are no other primates that are living on the island, as far as we know. 
We only know so much because the fossil record of Madagascar is not great during the time when lemurs and other mammals likely arrived on the island. But from what we can tell, there wasn't much living there that would have been kind of occupying this tree-climbing space that lemurs wanted to inhabit. And so they do. And as they do, they speciate, which is the, a wonderful verb. <laughs> to speciate is to diversify into many species. And so what was probably something that looked like a bush baby galago animal becomes something that looks like a rough lemur over time, looks like a shafak over time, looks like megalaticus, the gorilla-sized lemur that once lived on the island of Madagascar. All of that comes from this founding population that they all had to find new ways to adapt to this new landscape. And so some of them adapted through different kinds of social complexity. Some adapted through different ways of finding food in the ecosystem. Um, and some adapted by moving their bodies in different ways. And each of those becomes a new experiment in how to help keep the lemur lineage alive on this really complicated island that has lots of different environments across it. And I always like to say that, you know, if, if Darwin had happened to make it to the giant island of Madagascar versus the Galapagos Islands, nobody would be talking about finches. We would all be talking about lemurs and the incredible diversification that they have done through their adaptation and their evolution on that island, mostly undisturbed for tens of millions of years. Learning about what a, it means to be a lemur teaches us what it means to be a strepsirine, what it means to be a primate, what it means to be a human, what it means to be a mammal, because all of these exceptions we love pointing out all are still very closely linked to us, right? Whether or not we still have the trait physically or it's still encoded somewhere in our genetic coding, we just share such an overwhelming amount of data in our like biological data with these animals that they might seem crazy different to us at first glance, but there's so much we can learn about ourselves from learning about them. When we study different branches of the tree of life, it ultimately can feel a little selfish. The reason we are studying the organisms around us and the way they diversify is because they are part of the world that we are inhabiting. And sometimes they're closely related to us, and so they share more features about how they interact with the world than we do. And that's really part of what makes lemurs so fascinating, is they are like us, but not quite. <laughs> and it's that not quite where we really come to understand what it means to be human. Thanks for joining us on this Duke Lemur Center journey. Subscribe and discover more episodes each season. We look forward to sharing more about the Duke Lemur Center with you soon. And in the meantime, follow us on social media and visit us at lemur.duke.edu. A special thanks to Julie Bortz, who edited this episode. And thank you, and goodbye for now. From Matt and Megan and all the primates at the Duke Lemur Center. Mm-hmm.